gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of the Fundamism Podcast. I'm your host, Paul J. Long, and we are brought to you, as always, by our sponsor, Charlie Hustle. Charlie Hustle doing amazing things in the Kansas City community and beyond. Go check out 1kforkc.org. If you want to know a little bit more about the Heart of KC Foundation and what Charlie Hustle is helping do uh, to potentially provide some monetary relief for those impacted financially by COVID-19. Ladies and gentlemen, I, uh, I'm super excited today because every now and again, uh, selfishly, I get the opportunity through this Fundamism podcast platform to interview folks that I look up to, uh, individuals that I admire, individuals that just selfishly I want to talk with because they are amazing human beings. They bring a smile to each and every single person that they they touch, and and a lot of crap has gone on in their life. And I feel like this is the platform for us to share it. And so for you, the Fundamism Podcast listener, you guys are in for a treat today because one of those individuals is with us here, Dr. Kieran Pemberton, Senior Director of Research and Development at Children's Mercy Hospital. What's good, brother? Hey, what's good, man? How are you? Good to see you, Paul. As always, brother. Listen, you know me. I'm on cloud nine and rising, and uh, you're you're propelling me up because um, in your coattails. I'm in your coattails, <laughs> right behind you, brother. <laughs> well, listen, uh, we have so much to talk about. Uh, I, I saw you at the uh, the Noah's Crown Town uh, golf tournament the other day, and uh, you just blew me away by all the stuff that's going on in your life. But before we do that, uh, you're a gentleman that that appears to be, at least uh, externally, every time I see you, a pretty lighthearted gentleman that enjoys having fun in life. What do you do for fun, sir? You know, I do um, I do a lot of things for fun. Um, I love my family, my wife, Heather, who's English. So it's an interesting combination, Paul. Irishman and an English lady, um, a man and wife, but it works well. We've been together now 25 years, married next year. So we've actually been together about 34 years. So uh it wasn't broken for the first nine years, so we didn't fix it. So I <laughs> love hanging out with the family. My two daughters are out of the house now. They, uh, one of them's a student up at K-State, and the other daughter is up at K-State, just living in, in Manhattan. But I um, love hanging out with them. Um, I love a good glass of wine, you know. Um, believe it or not, there's a large Irish community in Kansas City, so we, we do hang out with the Irish quite a bit, you know. Um, it's amazing how uh, witness protection works. <laughs> Um, and then, obviously, I play. I play golf. I try to play golf as often as I can. Um, it really does de-stress me. Um, even the bad I how bad I play, it still just de-stresses me. And uh, the wife knows on a Sunday, even if I haven't played golf that weekend, I'm just a little bit crabby. So um, that's that's what I like to do. I I played sport. I played soccer at university back in the UK. So I played soccer most of my life, you know. And then I got a bit of an injury playing indoor soccer, and the wife was like, "You're done. That's it. No more soccer." <laughs> pick up something less stressful. So um, I turned to the golf course and uh, thankfully you guys, I get to see you guys, you know, quite often, but also on the golf course, which is fun, man. So, yeah. Well, I think you just, you just kind of identified uh, the reason why you've been together for 34 and going on 25 of marriage is because whatever Heather says, we do, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> you, know, wife. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. Well, you know, um, listen, you've kind of let the cat out of the bag. Obviously, we could tell by your accent that you have something phenomenal going on, which is one of 8 million reasons why I wanted you to be on here because it's just soothing and fun to listen to. But you grew up in uh, Derry, Northern Ireland, is that? Exactly. Derry, Northern Ireland. Yeah. Some folks call it Londonderry, but um, 
you can tell what side of the border they're on if they call it dairy or London dairy. So I'm definitely a dairy man. Yeah, I'm a dairy man. So um, a second bit of history dairy has had over the years. But um, every time we go home now, it's just so wonderful to see the city bloom, having been through all the troubles that it has, you know. And uh, Derry's got a great musical history. Um, so there's music everywhere in Derry. And um, unfortunately, none of those genes came my way. So when I sing, my wife tells me to... You know, the, the dogs start howling just to try and knock out the sound. But uh, no, we, lo we love going back to Derry. I spent a lot of my youth in Donegal, just over the border in, in, the, in the Republic of Ireland. And um, you and I need to go over there with some of our friends, buddy, because it is the golf over there is amazing. You know, the Guinness, they, they have this, this little drink called Guinness, which is, it's, it's, it's an acquired taste. And how they pour it over there, Paul, is so different. You know, it, it just makes it so creamy. And I can just see me and you looking out over one of the beaches in Donegal, just chatting the, the world away and, and sinking a few pints of Guinness, my man. Listen, I am in. I I, uh, I just booked my flight ticket. You thought I was paying attention to you. I was, <laughs> I'm sitting here looking for flights. Um, you know, so we, we do share a ton in common outside of just perspective and our desire to help advance the pediatric cancer uh, research movement. Uh, but just cancer in general, you know, I, I, so many people have been impacted. I asked the question at the uh, at the golf tournament, if you recall, you know, by a show of hands, how many of you in attendance today have either you yourself been impacted by cancer or know somebody that has and every single hand was up, right? Yep. And uh, it, it's just phenomenal when so many people come together for an amazing cause. So we obviously have that in common. And I, I do want to really get into that. Um, Dr. Pemberton, which you're going to continue to call me out to call you, Kieran. Uh, so here we go. It's Kieran now, guys. We got the mutual respect out of the way. He told me coming on. I got to call him Kieran. Um, but, you know, growing up in, um, in Northern Ireland, different, obviously, than what we experience here. Uh, you married Heather, uh, who is English. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about how uh, growing up over there kind of shaped your perspective in life. Yeah, so, you know, growing up in, a, in an Irish family, um, the humor was a huge part of it, you know. Um, the Irish are awesome at laughing at themselves. And if you can't laugh at yourselves, you know, if I can't laugh at myself, I'm going to laugh at Paul Long because the man <laughs> is a funny guy. So um, it's just, you know, you, you just wear your, your your heart on your sleeve a lot of the times, you know. And I think that's how I've come to be in an administrative role within research. Obviously, I, I did a PhD. I became a doctor, did research. But... I was always the person, I wasn't the most nerdiest scientist, you know, because I had that. My wife says, I never know a stranger, you know. So um, a bit like yourself, we, we're extrovert, um, love chatting. I hate sitting in a room when no one's talking, you know, that's not, oh, come on, let's talk, you know, let's, let's have some fun. And so that that is part of the, the, the genetics of being Irish, you know, that, that just comes naturally. They call it kissing the Blarney Stone. Yes. You know, anything, you know, and um, I took my wife and we did go down to Blarney Castle and she kissed the Blarney Stone and... I don't know why, but I kissed it as well, just to double up. <laughs> he never quite got the whole, you know, just open your mouth and all of this diatribe comes out. But um, it's just part of being Irish, brother. You know, it's just, um, and the Irish look, obviously, you know, living in, in Northern Ireland through the Troubles was was a difficult time. But I never once felt, oh, woe is me, you know, um, this is awful. It was, I loved every minute of my childhood. I loved going to school. Um it was an all-boys Catholic school run by priests, so it, it could get interesting. But, um, you know, everybody just gathered around and we got through the troubles one way or another, you know. And that's why I say going back now, it's just awesome to see 
how Northern Ireland has just flourished, you know, and a lot of that is down to our American cousins, you know, because the Americans come over there in droves to to, to vacation and, to, and play golf, whatever, and that's huge, you know. Um, Americans have been, the Irish Americans have been such a, a pillar of strength for the Irish for years and years, and that continues to this day, you know, so... Um, it wasn't a difficult decision when we got offered the opportunity to come to Kansas City. I can tell you that it was that was an easy one. But uh, I think you know, so being Irish, you know, I, I love having a good time. You know, um, I, I love getting around a, a piano and someone playing. And even though I can't sing, I'll join in. You know, and I, it wouldn't take me long to get you singing, brother. Because um, <laughs> you're right, because you know, I would be singing before you. <laughs> uh, the old Irish tunes just get you going. You know, and you get a tear in your eye, and off you go. You know, so. Um, it's just, it's John Wayne in uh, The Quiet Man. That's what it's like, man. That is it. That is it, you know, so. I got, I, gosh, I have so many questions. Um, so, so again, every now and again, I get the opportunity to interview somebody that I've known for a bit that I don't, I, I haven't really got to truly know, like your foundation and how you got to be who you are. And of course, you know, the, the more that you unravel, the more I appreciate and realize that we're two very similar guys. And, you know, I, I know that, you know, you, you mentioned, I can't sing very well. I can't sing very well either. And you do sing. I do sing though. That's the point. And, and newsflash, uh, Kieran, all of my jokes don't hit, but I laugh at them constantly. And so right. The benefit, of course, is when you don't take yourself so seriously and you can laugh and you could sing even though it's terrible, that that provides us a little brain pattern interrupt to get out of the nonsense, to get out of the noise and all the crap that society is feeding us day in and day out. And truth be told that we're feeding ourselves. So you've mentioned uh, several times, not just in the um, in the, the pre-interview interview, uh, but now on air as well, the troubles in Ireland. And uh Coming from somebody completely ignorant, talk to us a little bit about the troubles and, and what that was like. So um, the, the troubles came, it all comes down to a, a religious divide, you know, between the Catholics and the Protestants. So um, when Ireland got segregated into the north and the south, the, uh, the north counties, the six counties of, of Northern Ireland, they were predominantly um, Protestant. Uh, the majority of the population was Protestant. And, and they... The, the, the Protestants in Northern Ireland had basically come to Northern Ireland from Scotland. They were um, Scottish landowners who the British government moved over there to run the big farms and the big estates. And so the Catholics were always the uh, the, the poor minority. Um, and so um, back in the in the late 60s, um, really taking the lead from from um, Martin Luther King and um, the uh, the movement over in the U.S., you know, um, looking for, for civil rights, you know, um, so... A lot of the Catholics, especially in Derry, where I was from, Derry's population is probably 75, 25, somewhere around there, um, Catholics to Protestants. Mm-hmm. Yet all of the uh, the good jobs in the city um, all went to Protestants, and all the nice homes went to Protestants. The, the, the Catholics lived um, mainly in, in second-class housing, you know. So um, there was a civil rights group that, that formed and, and decided to push back on this. And um, this is before paramilitaries got involved or the IRA or the UDA or whatever. Um, but um, that, that, that civil rights group were not looked on very favorably by the, the police force um, in Northern Ireland, which used to be called the, the, the RUC, the Royal Ulster Constabulary. And so things just escalated very quickly, Paul, and it, it became somewhere where um, 
we were known for not just the singing in the Guinness, but we were known for the bombs and the bullets, you know, um, and the ballot and the bullet was never, ever going to work. Um, so uh, we, we had to figure out a way of getting out of that. Um, thankfully, there were folks around, like a very good friend of my family's, John Hume, who unfortunately just passed away just recently. He, um, he actually was awarded the Peace Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize, for his work in, in bringing peace to Northern Ireland. So um, interesting story about John Hume. He actually asked my mom out on stage way back in the day. So, um, <laughs> you know, in a different universe, I could have been John Hume's son, but we won't go there. <laughs> So, um, yeah, he was a good friend of my family's growing up. Um, he went to, to my, my alma mater, St. Columns College. He went there with a couple of my uncles. So um, Northern Ireland, you know, it, it's, it, it, it had all the worst headlines possible. But um, as I said, I never felt that I was living in a war zone. You know, it's just it was I love my childhood in Ireland, you know, still love going back there. Uh, and it's just so good to see how we can move on from those sorts of environments. Um, people are working together now, but um it was, you know, it, it it takes maybe two or three generations before people really forget and are prepared to to forgive. And hopefully we're getting closer to that now, Paul. Um, I, I look back at it. I don't look back on it with, with, with shock and fear. I look back on it with, it was still where I grew up. It's still home to me, you know. Um, Heather and I are talking about maybe retiring in, in five or whatever years, and I'd love to retire back to, to Donegal, you know, so... Um, Heather wants to run a pub, so um, I'll keep a seat at the bar for you, my man. <laughs> the, yeah, and it, it has to have something fun right there. Oh God, yes, yeah. Well, so what are your so what are your parents doing when all this stuff is going on? So actually, my parents split up. So um, as a, as a, a kid, at the age of two, um, my whole family moved out to Africa. So we went and we lived in Zambia for three and a half years, and then we lived in Malawi for three and a half years. My dad. Uh, worked for Barclays Bank, which was one of the big banks in the UK, and so um, he was he was sent out there uh, as a bank manager. Uh, and then my mum and dad split up, and we came back to Ireland in '73, right into the middle of the troubles, you know. And uh, I remember coming back. We we lived um, in a sort of a gentrified English type of atmosphere in Africa because it was, you know, the, the Brits abroad type. They all hung out together. So both myself and I had fairly posh. English accents, and we walked back into Derry, Northern Ireland, as a, as a as a, you know, a Catholic family. But walking back in there with posh English accents, that wasn't a good thing. But I can never remember being picked on because of that, you know. So uh, my uncle Phil, he's he's pretty well known over in Ireland. He's a, he's a musician, and the fam everybody knew who we were. We were part of that family, the Coulter family. So um, we never got I never got into any trouble because of my accent. But I I got rid of that accent as quick as I could, and as you can tell, I still have it now. So. <laughs> It's, it's endearing. I feel like everybody wants to hear what you have to say. <laughs> well, sometimes it's not as endearing. The wife doesn't find it always endearing. But you know where I'm coming from that, brother. <laughs> hey, so, you know, we're talking about um, Irish stereotypes. You talked about bombs and obviously religion and all that stuff. So I know that, you know, back then we used to solve problems with these bad boys right here, right? right. Did, did you find yourself throwing fisticuffs a lot growing up? Um, not, not so much. I've fought my two brothers all the time. And that's just part of life, you know. But um, when I went, when I first left Derry to go over to college in the UK, I ended up at Plymouth Polytechnic. Um, around the time that the Falkland War was going on down in uh, the Falklands, and um, a lot of the servicemen left Britain to go down on the, on the, the fleet from Plymouth. And so Plymouth became a, 
a hotbed of the army and the Marines. And so there was a couple of times when I got into a little bit of trouble, a little bit of discussion with folks when they, when they heard my accent, you know, because obviously that stage the troubles were still going on, you know, you know, everybody wanted to, to to live for England and for the United Kingdom to protect the Falklands. And so a little Irish guy at a party, if he, if he, if he, if he, if he spoke up too loud, it wasn't long before someone came over and told me to shut up, you know, so um, growing up Irish, yeah, we all know how to use our fists every now and again, but um I just protected myself, you know. <laughs> right, you got to have your head on a swivel. You got to be prepared. Absolutely. You know, I, I wasn't. I don't ever have an agenda when I go into these interviews, but every now and again, a topic will come up that I'm fascinated by, because um, it, it seems to be creeping up a lot in my life. I mean, I have a lot of friends. Um, I myself am a, of a product of it. Uh, you yourself are now a product of it. Uh, a split home. So uh, my mother and father divorced at a very, very young age. And uh, I like to think that I turned out okay. And uh, it, it certainly looks or appears that you have turned out phenomenally. But I have several friends right now that are really struggling in their relationship. And um, the, the husband knows it, the wife knows it. And some of the consistent things that I hear as a response of why we continue to try and make it work is because of the kids. I don't want to put the kids through this or uh, the kids can't uh, survive in a broken home. What's your take on your experience coming from a broken family and how did it kind of shape you into the man that you are? Um, I think moving back to Ireland when my mother and father got divorced, um, all of my mother's you know, brothers and sisters were in Derry. And so we had a huge family, Irish Catholic family, and they just wrapped us up you know, in a blanket and said, hey, you know what? You're part of this now. We're going to hold on to you. We're going to make all this right. So um, we, we we got to see my dad. He lived over in London. Um, we got to see him every Christmas and then during the summer. We, we, so I, I never felt that I was, you know, without a father as such. Um, he always tended to spoil us when, we, when he saw us to make up for whatever, you know. But, um, yeah, that that's that's an interesting comment because I, I never really felt that that had any effect on my development as a person. Hmm. Um, you know, I'm I, as I say, I've been married now. 25 years next next July. Um, and it's not easy. It's it's hard work, you know, with COVID, with, you know, what our two daughters have gone through with COVID. One of them graduated this summer from university, from college up in, uh, in uh, Knox College up in Galesburg, Illinois. And she struggled with that. She also was a sports person. She played um, softball for the university. So she didn't get a chance to play her, her senior season. And, you know, just... All that part of being a father, being a husband, you know, being a an uncle. Um, you know, when, when we talk to our daughters about possibly going over to Ireland to, to retire, they're like, no, no, you did that to us. <laughs> you, know, you took us away. Like, and we didn't see our cousins but one eight once a year. So don't you know, they see how important family is to us. They've got that Irish nature as well, that family's tremendously important. That was difficult when we left England to come over to to the America to the US. But um yeah, marriage is, you got to work at it, brother. you got to work hard at it. It's, uh, it's a tough thing. And uh, i got some friends who are going through some issues as well. But, um, you know, it's, I think it, it's a very personal thing in terms of how you deal with issues like that. Um, but, um, you know, touch wood. My wife still loves me. She hasn't kicked me out of the house. Well, <laughs> specifically referenced, it wasn't broken after nine years. What's the significance of nine years? That was the dating period? Well, um, so her mom, who is an English Protestant, she um, she was like, why do you have to live together? Why can't you get, we were both living in London. I was having a great time, you know, living in London. I was playing soccer probably three or four days a week. 
playing in two different leagues at the weekend on a Saturday afternoon and a Friday morning, hanging out with a bunch of guys, half of whom were Irish. Um, and, you know, it was like, well, it's not broken, so why, why, why do we want to fix it? My mom, being an Irish Catholic mother, sort of turned a blind eye to the fact that we were living together, living in sin, you know. But um, once we got to the stage where we both got our PhDs and, you know, it was time for to start a family, I, I knew straight away then that I wasn't going to have a family out of wedlock because my mother would not have forgiven me. So um, we decided then to get married. And uh, thankfully, I have a, a priest, Father Joe, my uncle priest, uh, Uncle Father Joe. He um, he was able to marry us. So um, and then Heather became a Catholic after we got married. Through uh, and Father Joe was able to help her through through that process as well. So um, yeah, interesting times. <laughs> it is. It's interesting times. And as the Fundamentalism Podcast listener tuning in. Uh, listen, uh, like Kieran said, like Dr. Pemberton said, we we all go through struggles in relationships. Relationships do take work. Anytime that you spend the bulk of your time or life with any one individual, there's going to be trials and tribulations. And obviously working and making a commitment to both parties uh, is imperative in making it work. But one individual can never have enough love to make something work for two people. So it's got to be a mutual street. And in closing on the topic, the one thing that you said that really fascinated me was I've never really given it much thought in terms of how my parents splitting up impacted my development. And I think that's an important takeaway because uh, I haven't either. And I think it's, it's okay for us to realize that we convince ourselves of anything when we're going through the struggle, right? To support our perspective or narrative. And I turned out okay. You turned out okay. Uh, do what's best for you and your family. And sometimes that means that you have to find your fun and your joy and fulfillment and realize that whatever you're doing is not providing that for you right now. So Dr. Pemberton, thanks for opening your heart and talking about that subject with me. Now I want to talk about your educational journey because you have all the letters behind your name. You have all the awards. You're one of the smartest dudes I've ever had on the podcast. Uh, you've, you've been to university all over the globe. Uh, so what what convinced you or what drew you to education and uh, even particularly uh, healthcare? Well, um, I had a really, really great biology teacher back at my, um, my alma mater, St. Collins College. His name was um, Mr. Grant, and just the way he taught the, the, the subject, it just drew me in. And so I knew I wanted to do something in biology. I went and did a, a diploma in applied biology, which was very experimental. And then from that, I went to university to do um, a degree that was specialized. It wasn't just biology. It was cell biology and immunology. And as part of that process in my final year, I had to do a, um, a, a third-year project, like a thesis project. And I ended up doing it on a um, on a parasite. And I, I went to university in Wales, in Aberystwyth in Wales, and that's where I met my wife. So we were allowed to talk to each other because we were on neutral territory. We were in Wales. We weren't in England. We weren't in Ireland. And the romantic side of it, Paul, is that we ended up doing our senior year project. We, we both did the same degree. We both used the same parasite. So there was there the love. That's how the love came about. We, we did a study of parasites. And um, so... I just loved doing the research. And so after I finished my degree, the professor in the Department of Biology, he kept me on. He, he had some money from the World Health Organization. Mm-hmm. And so I did another project on, um, on a parasite in, in cattle up in Wales. Um, and then I got a job uh, doing some work on a drug called tamoxifen, which is a breast cancer drug. Um, one of the side effects in a very small percentage of cases is, is thrombosis. 
And so I moved down to King's College London to work on that project. And then I started a PhD um, and did my PhD on a gene called tissue factor. This is getting nerdy now. So when you cut yourself, you have a coagulation cascade and that stops the blood. That makes the blood clot. Well, the very first, the initiator of coagulation is a gene called tissue factor. And so we looked at, at how this gene was made up of these introns and exons and all the bits and pieces. And we were able to figure that out. And I did that on a mouse model. And so I learned how to use mouse mice in, in, in research. And that's something that, you know, my wife is still involved in the Stowers. She, she runs the animal facility at the Stowers Institute. We've been doing that together now for, you know, best part of 25, 26 years now. So um, I just knew I wanted to get into research. And so um, we had the opportunity to, to come over to Kansas City. So our boss, the guy who um, was my PhD supervisor, was a guy called Rob Krumloff, Dr. Rob Krumloff. And he was recruited by the Stowers Institute to be their scientific director. So he turned to Heather and I and said, look, you know, would you come to Kansas City just to get the lab set up, you know? And we had no idea, we, you know, Kansas City, you know, John Wayne walking down the street, you know, the, you know, the, the saloon doors blowing open in the, in the wind. So um, when we came out here, we came out for a week in, in 1999, mm. loved it. They put us up in the Raphael. They took us to a ball game. You know, I think you've been to a ball game or two, you know? Yep. <laughs> The Royals. I absolutely loved it. It was September and it was hotter than, oh, the weather has been a huge change in, in getting used to how the weather is in Kansas City. But we loved it. You know, we, he said, give me three years, get the lab sent up. You know, you can, you, you say you've done a postdoc in the US and you go back and work in the UK. We're still here, buddy. We're still here 20 years later. Heather's still working at the Stowers. I obviously now work at Children's Mercy. Um, we absolutely love Kansas City. Love it because of folks like you. Love it because of the Royals, because of the Chiefs, because of Sporting KC. You know, just love everything about it. Bringing up our kids in Kansas City was great. So uh, they're two All-American girls now. There's no English or very little Irish left in them now. But And so um, I worked at the Stowers for 12 years. And then I, I, I got into administration a little bit research-wise and ended up going to KU Med, University of Kansas Medical Center, which was awesome. Spent four years there. And then Dr. Curran, who's, who's my current boss, He's a good Scots guy, so we have a we have a Celtic meeting once a week. But no, no English are allowed, you know, just right. the Celtic. And so um, he 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 basically convinced me to come over to to Children's University to get involved in this new research institute that we're just opening at the moment. Um, and it's been phenomenal. Um, one of the favorite parts of my day, one of the parts of my day that I get the most fun out of Paul is is actually talking to and and you know doing work with with the. Uh, the philanthropy folks and the wonderful philanthropists in Kansas City, obviously Scott and Deb Wilson, you know, are right up there with those folks. Um, love those two. They're just awesome. And everything that you guys do within Noah's Bandage Project has just been a pleasure to be involved in, you know. Um, and, uh, you, you know, Scott and Deb way better than I do, but they're just so down to earth, you know. I love those folks. I want to spend more time with all of you guys. But um, that's that's honestly, that is one of the funnest times of my life at the moment is actually being able to – you know, philanthropy will call me and say, would you mind taking these people up on the building to give them a tour? Or would you go and talk to them? I'm like, absolutely. I'll drop everything to go and do that because just to to share that, the mission and the vision of what the Institute is all about with those folks is just a joy to, to behold. You know, you see folks smiling going, wow, this is happening in Kansas City. And you go, yeah, it is. It's it's because of folks like the Paul Longs and the Scott Deb Wilsons and the Delise Hoffins, you know, that we're able to do this, you know. And then we've got obviously the Hall Foundation have been huge, and the Sunderland Foundation have been huge in, in terms of providing major funding for the for the institute. So 
it's been, you know, it's one day is never like another day, Paul. You know, when you work in the lab, you do a lot of mundane things, but I always try to find a fun way to get around that. And um, yes. I think I've found a great way now to be, you know, I can be personable with people. I can be extrovert and just bring bring that message to those folks is, is tremendous. You know, I love it. My goodness. Well, um, for those of you indulging that have recently seen uh, me speak at a speaking engagement, whether it was farmer's insurance or uh, the Missouri bankers or whatever it may be. Uh, what Kieran just referenced um, is, is being challenged in, in monotony or these mundane tasks. And he said, I don't know if you heard him, that he's, he's found a way around that by injecting a little bit of fun. That, of course, is the fundamental, a new spin, which we talked to you guys about. And hopefully to all of you listening today, if you just sit down and identify these three to five tasks in your life, whether personally or professionally, that you find uh, somewhat monotonous or mundane, and you try to find a way to to inject a, a little more fun in it or put a different spin on it, whether it's incorporating uh, a podcast while you're doing it or listening to music or uh, telling jokes or laughing or whatever it may be, uh, this, this fundamentalism, this new spin, this injecting fun can really challenge the monotony of your day. And I can tell you, Kieran, in our experiences, um, and speaking from myself, right. uh, my experience with you, I've had several tours uh, or back office meetings at Children's Mercy, and you were a staple, uh, a foundation uh, in every single one of them. I recall uh, before the building, uh, the tower was even uh, under construction, having a meeting with you and you guys were passing around the goodie basket. And I, I got to pull out a thing of chips and uh, a glass, a, a bottle of water because you guys always treat us with so much respect, right? Uh, but you actually showed us the drawing uh, of the tower that actually came from one of your patients. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, Chase. Chase did a, he, he was a patient. He actually comes back every now and again. He lives um, quite far out west in Kansas, but he has to come back in every now and again for a checkup. But um, when he was a patient here, he, um, he drew this, this image of, of what the Research Institute should look like. And he, he drew it in such a way that um, every floor was a different color. And so the first floor was one color and it represented where the gift shop was. And then the next floor was a different color and it represented where the doctor's offices were. And then you moved up and there was the, the, the operating theater. There was the floor that you went to when you broke bones or whatever. And then the top three or four floors were all the same color. I think they were all yellow. And so when we asked Chase, why, why are those floors all the same color? He said, well, I ran out of colors. I only had <laughs> a certain number of crayons that I could use. So, uh, but he was, you know, and, and Dr. Curran uses that slide in his presentations about the research institute. You know, we, we joke that we brought in um, the best architects we could find, the best construction company we could find to design this building. And Tom said, well, we had a patient here at Children's Mercy and he designed it for you because it looks so much like, that's true. It does look very much like what, what the building ended up looking like. So uh, that was, that's a great story. You know, what's amazing about that is uh, oftentimes in, in leadership or organizational culture, mm -hmm. um, employees, uh, doesn't matter if you're frontline, mid-level manager, wherever it may be, we oftentimes look for uh, the, the leadership team, the executive leadership team to kind of figure out what the culture is going to look like and filter right. it down, right? Right. Uh, you've provided not only the example of Chase, 
but of course, Noah, and that's how we met through Noah's Bandage Project. I, I myself am actually wearing the uh, Charlie Hustle uh, awesome. community with uh, Noah's Bandage Project. Go to charliehustle.com to check it out. It's one of the most amazing shirts I own. But here you have Noah, who changed the way that hospitals order supplies, uh, which impacted the patient uh, experience. Then you got Chase that literally helped design a whole research institute uh, as a patient that impacted the patient experience. What that tells me is that uh, culture and experience can not only be driven top down, but bottom up as well. And so we don't always have to have all the answers, right? It's it's really cool when individuals like you, Kieran, could... uh, could have conversations with people and throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks because great ideas come amongst great minds and great people. And whenever there's more individuals than one, then obviously good things can happen. So gosh, man. One of the things we've seen about the the research institute is um, a lot of the the staff, we've got eight and a half thousand people work at Children's Mercy and a lot of the nurses and they, they, they ask questions of why, why do we need a research institute? You know? So Part of my job, part of what Dr. Kerr wanted me to do was to, to, to reach out and, and share with them what the vision was and why we need to do this, you know. And then even even talking to some of the patients, getting them involved in it, you know, um, they, they got excited when they, they they knew the building was coming up. And we, went, we ended up asking four patient families if they would be willing for us to use their DNA sequence on the building. So at night, the building is lit up. And you can see, you can actually see the um, the sequence of DNA, and it's in white. The white colored, the, the windows are colored white. Every now and again, there's a red window, and that red window designates the mutation in a gene that caused the disease that makes those patients. That's why they're at Children's Mercy. And so, we went to the patients' families. We said, "Would you be prepared?" And they were, "Oh my God, yes!" You know what? A, what a legacy that is. Your DNA is on a research. Institute building for the rest of you. I'm just, I'm choking up now. The hair's on the back of my neck. I just love it. The kids, the kids have been such an important part of building this institute. Obviously, it's all for the kids. You know, we talk about the work that we're going to do in the in the building is translational research. It's translating a bedside a bedside discovery to the bedside. But Tom would argue, Dr. Kern would argue that it's also the kids. When the kid comes in, and we have no idea why this kid is sick. We need to do some research to find out what's going on there. So it comes full circle. The kids are actually dictating what research we need to do in the building. And that's huge, Paul. That's that's absolutely huge, you know, that translational science aspect of it. Well, um, obviously, you know, you and I have connected through this uh, pediatric cancer bond. Um, and there's so much more to our relationship outside of that. But, you know, the day that, that, um, that, that Noah passed, I actually had the opportunity uh, to be in his room with him just three hours uh, or or four hours right before he passed away. And of course, at this point, he's in a, a medically induced coma. And um, I don't know why Scott and Deb thought it was important or they thought enough of me to bring me in that room, but that was a life-altering moment for me. And, uh, you know, with tears in Deb's eyes, and hopefully they don't mind me sharing this story, it was one of the most impactful things I've ever seen or experienced. But with tears in her eyes and, and, and Scott looks at me and smiles and he, you know, he's rubbing Noah's, you know, baby bald head and he says, say something to him. And, uh, you know, I'm what do I say? I, I, I have no idea. And I just, I got lost in emotion. And in that moment, I decided that like, nobody should have to experience this. And 
I want to use my platform, whatever that looks like. And it looked far different back then, obviously, uh, mainly just built on a cat suit back then um, than it does now. But, you know, since then, one of the coolest thing about being part of Noah's Bandage Project is getting our annual updates uh, at Children's Mercy through you guys. And so one of the things that I admire amongst many, many other things is, is you guys just don't take this grant money and write out, say, thanks, see ya, we'll let you know. But what you do is you invite us in, you invite us into the process, you invite us in behind the scenes and you put together a beautiful slide deck that says, here's what we've done as a result of your funding and here's what we're going to do in addition to. And the most recent one was was, uh, late last year or or mid mid last year, Uh, you gave us a tour, but I remember going into that that office and, and, you guys had your slide deck and, and Dr. Kern was there and you guys were just, you, te- you, you have so much joy and passion for this movement. Why? Where did that come from? Why, why are you so passionate about uh, just research in general? To see the effect it can have on families. So when Scott and Deb came to us and they said, we want to make a donation of a million dollars over five years to help pediatric cancer research. And so Tom and I sat down with Dr. Iwakuma from KU Med, and we figured out a request for proposals document. And, and then both Scott and Deb came in, um, and we met with Dr. Aaron Guest, who was, was Noah's oncologist, and we sat down and we explained it to him. We explained how we were going to do this and what, it would, what effect it would have on us being able to do that sort of work at Children's Mercy in collaboration with some of the folks over at KU Med and the Cancer Center there. And at some stage in that conversation, Deb started filling up and I said to Deb, are you okay? What, what's wrong? And she, she was just so thankful that, that we'd spent time working on this together. And I said, Deb, if it isn't for you guys, you know, it's not for you and Paul and Scott and, and your Braden's Hope and these other folks, we wouldn't be able to do this work. You know, the funding's not out there. It's so competitive to get any sort of funding for pediatric cancer research. 4% of the NIH's, the National Institute, National Cancer Institute, pardon me, is, is goes to, to any form of cancer research in a pediatric setting. That's awful, Paul. That's awful. And so when you guys come in and you've got this eagerness and this volume of love that you want to spread like yourself, like you do every day, brother, it's like we can't let them down. We can't let them down. You know, we've got to do this. And so I remember talking a couple of weeks after that, we had a town hall and um, I was. I had a slide up about Noah's Bandage Project and the, the fact that they'd come to us and said, we got a million dollars we want to give you over five years. And I said, you know what? I know this family now. I know this family well, and we can't let them down. We've got to do it. And so that's what's been so hard about COVID is that we've had to pull back on the research front because obviously we want to protect our kids here at Children's Mercy, but just you know, not being able to get on with those projects so we've done everything we can to make sure we can get those some of those researchers back in the lab, especially now with the new building and what it can do. You know, it's just we got to get this going again. We've got to obviously be very careful. Social distancing is a huge thing. But, you know, for the sake of the kids, Paul, for the sake of the kids, we need to do this. Translational research came about maybe 15, 20 years ago by the National Institutes of Health. And what they saw was that the process of finding something in the lab and taking that to the bedside was taking upwards of 15 years and could cost cost up to a billion to $2 billion. We haven't got 15 years, Paul. These kids are six months old. They're six years old. They're 16 years old. We haven't got that time. Mm. We've got to shorten that. That timeline has to shorten. 
And by doing the sort of research that Scott and Deb wanted us to do, which was specifically targeted at individual cancers, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. But we wouldn't be able to do it without you guys. We wouldn't be able to do it without Friday. You know, Friday, the the Crown Town Golf Tournament was awesome. You know, we, we love going out there, bringing out some of the, uh, the Children's Mercy folks. Um, but just seeing the smiles on the faces, you know, um, when I got on the tee box, there's a kid on the tee box, a, a cut out of every kid. I try to give each kid a, a you know, a, a knuckle sandwich just to say thanks for for being here and or for not being here. You know, the angels were above us looking down on us. But um, that's why I do it. You know, that's why I do it, brother. Just to, to anything I can do to help that and to move that along. You know, um, there's a lot of administration, a lot of bureaucracy that we have to deal with, but we need to get through this quickly so that we can work on these these projects. Well, so I got two last things that I want to discuss with you. Um, one being uh, super important, near and dear to both of our hearts, uh, an extension of what we just talked about. But before we get there, you know, as a man of science, as a man of, uh, of research, as a man that's been in, um, you know, healthcare for the bulk of his professional career right. and seeing the impact that research and, and, and science can play on the development of drugs and health and all that stuff. We're in a really unique space right now where politics are entering just about everything that we're doing, right? And so to whatever extent you're willing to share, you know, you said two very interesting things, right? You talked about the power of uh, of research and development and all that stuff. But also you said, we got to get back, you know, we got to get back to doing what we do. It's for the kids, right? So how do we balance these two things? And, and, and what do you think about just society in general kind of casting wind to, um, you know, science and, 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 and medicine right now for the sake of, to your point, uh, you know, mental health or opening things up or whatever it may be. I know this is a really broad and dangerous subject, but what's your take on the whole thing? You know, it's, it's strange, strange times. You know, we've, we've obviously we've never experienced anything like this. The, the scientific community hasn't experienced anything like this. There's still so much about the virus that we don't know. Um, and we looked at that as a, as a research institute and we said, well, what can we do about this? So one of the areas that I know I talked to you about in the new building is a biological safety level three area that we're putting in. So that will actually give us the ability to work on the live virus should we need to do that. We don't currently have any of the live virus on, on, on site, but you know, research is essential to figure out what the vaccine is going to be, when the vaccine is going to be available, when it's going to work and how it works. And it's crucial that we actually go through that that project, that process, as carefully and as safely as possible to make sure that the the vaccine that we end up using is going to save as many lives as possible. So, you know, there's so much more research in this. We know that, unfortunately, you know, the Mars and the SARS and uh, these these sorts of viruses are out there. They they mutate very randomly, and so you know, the amount of work that's gone into the research of this particular virus stands us in good stead for when this might happen again, when we might have another outbreak from whatever cause that there might be. And so, you know, as a scientist, I, I, I try and ignore politics. Having grown up in Northern Ireland, politics is something that I spent a lot of time discussing and, and, and fighting against, pushing against and saying, why can't we just talk? You know, as a scientist, I'll get on with the science. I'll let the politicians do whatever they think they need to do. But, um, you know, Tony Fauci, Dr. Curran knows Tony Fauci and, uh, you know, we'd love to get Tony down here in Kansas City to be the first speaker in the new auditorium of the building. How how cool would that be? Talking about how to fight COVID in, in a pediatric population. You know, um, 
science doesn't lie. We're not making this up. You know, it's science is a long, slow process. Research is takes years to do, but we all, we've always seen the outcome of research being positive. Um, we create those drugs, we create those devices, we create those new treatments. That's what this research institute is all about. It's not standing out there as a, a siloed institute. It's not a you know a white herring floating off on its own. It is part and parcel of the hospital. It is attached to the hospital. The collaboration between physicians and, and scientists is immense. It has to be immense. And we'll we'll do the science and we'll let those other folks do whatever they think they need to do. I've been very political there, brother. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a great answer. I, I I just find it fascinating, especially from a from a doctor or scientist perspective. Uh, what's your take? Because you know, of course, so many of our perspectives perspectives are being shaped by individuals that aren't necessarily well versed in you know what we're talking about. And so, I think it's important. You know, we live in a society where no one knows what the hell facts are, uh, and we try to discredit everything. So uh, you're somebody that uh, I would say generally I believe. So I'm just trying to get a little. Oh my gosh! If you're believing an Irishman, you're living your life on an Irishman. To say, huh? uh, I need to be. I need to be careful with you from now on. Then. <laughs> a couple of takeaways. Uh, first of all. Uh, I would love to be in attendance. I expect an invite when you get Dr. Fauci on site. And then personal goal, note to self, I aim to be the second speaker that you have in that auditorium. Oh my God, yes. So we'll go and have some fun. Hey, um, all right, last topic. You're going to be the MC, dude. Did you not get the note? I didn't get the note, but listen, I'm in. You know I'm, I'm me. I'm writing it now. I'm writing it now. <laughs> Uh, so uh, while you're researching plane tickets, right? Um, <laughs> so the last thing I want to talk to you about is, um, you know, I got the opportunity to see you and, uh, you know, last Friday we did announce that we finally made our, our, our last, um, uh, grant of $200,000, which actually equated all in all to our $1 million, uh, incredible. Absolutely. Commitment. Incredible. It's um, just stop and think about it. A million dollars because a kid decided to start collecting band-aids when he was treated for cancer. That is incredible, dude. It and is. it's not just the money, it's the money before that as well, you know? So sure, absolutely. Just incredible. His yeah. legacy, dude, his legacy is. And I mean, I, if I just truly reflect on everything that that boy created, um, I mean, you and I wouldn't be chatting here today. I wouldn't have met, you know, Chase McAnulty from Charlie Hustle. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider Scott and Deb Wilson family. Uh, I wouldn't have had so many experiences, whether it's at the, uh, you know, celebrity pickleball tournament in volleyball. That was brilliant. That was brilliant. Yeah. Or, or getting to share Noah's story uh, in nearly every state that I've ever been to. This boy, he impacted so many folks. And like, like I say, whenever I bring up his story, is. While he did lose his battle with death, which we all will, every single one of us, he won his battle with life because the legacy that he created, the relationships that he built and established and, and the heart that he led with could really, it was generational. I mean, it could change so many things. And that's where I, I, I want to end with you uh, prior to just- He a always little, had a smile. He always had a smile always, on his face. Always had a smile. Matter of fact, in the we have a little three and a half minute uh, video that's just a montage of uh, him in the hospital and him playing baseball and all that stuff. And, and I mean, it probably had, I don't know, 30 different shots of him. And in every single one, but one, he was smiling. And the one that he wasn't, he was just in a warm, loving embrace with Scott. And that's just, 
I feel like there's so much to be learned there. Like when you talk about the troubles growing up in Ireland and, and, and specifically the perspective that allowed you to see, and probably I'm guessing comparing that to some of the discourse that we see right now in our society, but then you compare all of that with little Noah Wilson and the chases of the world and so many other little Ella and so many others, uh, Braden and so many others that have been impacted by this terrible disease. And it really offers perspective in that, what the hell do I have to complain about? I mean, what exactly? I mean, yeah, seriously. And, and please, as you're listening to this, I know that many of you have lived a very hard life. You've been impacted uh, either by health or whatever it may be. But the moral, what I'm trying to say is no matter what you're going through, somebody's always got it worse. And quite honestly, they might be handling it a little bit better. And that is the segue uh, to the last topic that I want to discuss with you in that um, I learned at our golf tournament that that this fight, this disease has hit really close to home for you. And uh, just like one of the first things that you said, I said, what's good, brother? How's it going? And you said, well, I don't know if, if you heard, but I got the cancer and I was blown away. So talk to us a little bit about this uh, this journey and, and how you found out and what happened as a result. Well, um, my wife, Heather, um, she was diagnosed with breast cancer back in 2016 and Touch wood, thank God, she's, she's all clear. She went through chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. Um, and it was tough on our daughters to see that. It was tough on me and her, you know, and we just, it just pulled us closer as a family, Paul. Um, and then I'm, I'm an old man, so I get tested every year for, for the, uh, the prostate antigen. And um, this year, my doctor called me straight away and said, okay, your, your, your level has doubled. Normally, my level was set since I started getting tested back in, when I was 50. Um, and she says, your level's double. Um, so we want to get you checked out. So, um, I was referred to KU cancer center. Um, they did, um, they did a scan, they did an MRI and, um, Dr. Parker saw what was clearly cancer and he showed me the MRIs cause I was a nerd. I, I know what, you know, I know how to look at an MRI and I was like, Oh, this is exciting. And then it was like, Oh my God. So he said, we're going to have to do some biopsies. So they took 15 biopsies. Um, and five of those biopsies were, were positive. So um, a funny story, talking about making fun of a difficult situation. So when, I, when they were doing the biopsies, you know, you, you leave your dignity at the door when they're taking biopsies of your prostate, honestly. So there was three nurses in the room and Dr. Parker. And um, it, was, it was kind of a wet morning, both. Like Literally this. and figuratively. <laughs> and then just as I was laid down on one side and they started to do whatever they were doing, um, one of the nurses happened to look out the window and, and the sun had come out. And she said, oh, my God, finally the sun's come out. And I just looked over my shoulder and I said, what, out of my arse? Because <laughs> <laughs> my mom always said the sun shot out of my... That's right. <laughs> and the doctor just stopped and he just burst out laughing. And I was like, oh, sorry, doctor, I probably shouldn't have said that. You know, disturbing you? And he goes, no, I'm a urologist. I need to laugh as much yes. as anybody else in the world. So, um, so uh, they discovered, obviously, that it was positive and... Um, uh, it turns out, obviously, my father, he passed away from prostate cancer um, about nine, eight, nine years ago. So um, they were concerned enough to to basically say, you know, we, we, we would consider taking this out, taking the whole prostate out. And my wife wasn't very happy about that because I'm still, I'm 56, I'm not that old, you know, and, you know, it, it's pretty debilitating when they take the full prostate out. So um, I said, let's just try the radiation. So I went through um, a short course of high high level radiation. Um, that, that, that kicked me 
pretty hard, um, but I got through it. And uh, now, touch wood, I've got a, a follow-up at the end of, I think it's in the first week in December, um, and they're expecting the PSA levels to be back to normal. Um, I feel that I got lucky, Paul, you know, um, it was stage one. They found it early and I went straight in and within, literally within a month and a half, I had, I had my, my radiation treatment was all done. Um, it does affect you a little bit. You think, you know, my wife was shocked and angry. I think I told you. She was angry. She said, why both of us, you know? And maybe it was because we're both scientists. We both know what's involved in not only the treatment, but how these things arise. Um, and it gives us a, a different aspect on looking at cancer and how you, you survive it. But, um, you know, if it hadn't been for the work that researchers had done using mice, using animals as a model, um, my wife wouldn't be with us now. She, um, she was given a monoclonal antibody to treat her. She was her two positive breast cancer. And if it hadn't been for that, that monoclonal antibody, she wouldn't be with us. So, um, yes, it, 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 it kind of came full circle because we, you know, we worked in that field and, you know, you, you don't often see the the benefits of the work you do, you know, but um, we both saw how the work that we do, even if we weren't actually involved in that project, how the work that we do is so important. And that's why we've got to do that in this new building that we're, we're, we're opening at the moment, Paul. And, you know, it's, um, I know I was lucky. I feel I was lucky. I feel, as I told you, I didn't have any symptoms. I wouldn't have known anything about it until the day that I got the PSA results. And so um, I do feel lucky. I got to ring the bell at the cancer center to, when my, my my treatment was all done. I felt a little bit guilty because I, I, I've known what other people have gone through. I knew what my wife had been through. And they said, no, no, you know, each each person has their own battle to fight, you know, and they, they get through it the best way they can. And I had a smile on my face when I did that, you know, and I got through it the best I could. But you know, it's it's a story that I'm I'm more than well, you know, happy to, to share with people. Um, even the the nerdy scientists can get cancer. <laughs> well, my my question related to that journey and that experience was uh, obviously, as a scientist, you have a different perspective and being around it so much. I mean, you're immersed in it all the time, and obviously, you mentioned. Heather having it. And I know that she, it, it really took its toll on her and that, you know, she lost her hair and it, it's some really extensive treatments and whatnot for you, when you were diagnosed, do you remember like how you felt? Like, did you, um, was it, was it like, Oh, okay, well we got this. Or was, did you have an Oh shit moment? I didn't, to be honest. Um, the Oh shit moment came when, when my wife was diagnosed and knowing what she'd gone through and I said to myself, and I said to Heather, you've been through this. You've shown me how to work this out. My kids have been with you every day, every every step of the way. You guys are going to be with me every step of the way. And I was lucky that, that the cancer was early stage. But having seen her go through it, it gave me the confidence that, hey, if the English can get through this, the Irish can get through this too, brother. We're not going to let them get, get they're not getting any of that platitude. <laughs> Well, listen, man, I, I just, uh, the more I learn about you, the more I love you, brother. I, uh, I, with respect to your time, I know that you guys are in the midst of a big move, uh, which is exciting, obviously. So the research Institute is, uh, is, is done or almost complete, just, you know, nuanced things that are going on down there. So you're moving in and that's a really exciting time. You mentioned, you know, when you were going through your journey, it really solidified how important the work that you and Heather and, and other scientists and doctors like you, um, the importance that you guys serve, right, and, and have. 
But don't lose sight, uh, Kieran, uh, the importance that you have in being who you are and the way that you uh, conduct your business and the way that you create relationships. Because it's one thing to do the work that you're doing behind the scenes. You have made such an impact on me personally, on Scott and Deb, and for other, uh, I know Delise and other families that have been impacted so much just by being the face uh, of Children's Mercy and allowing people to see that there can be a smile and there is light at the end of the tunnel. And even though things have been extremely dark, uh, you're helping us get better. So dude, I just, I'm honored to have you. Uh, If I don't go to Ireland with you, uh, I have failed miserably. So we have to make this happen now. Um, Anything in closing that you got to get off your chest before we wrap up our time together? Um, Somebody asked me a while ago, you know, if I had a, if I had three wishes, what would those wishes be? And it would be pediatric cancer. Let's kick it. Let's get it out of here. You know, every form of pediatric cancer. And we know that cancer comes back. You know, obviously, Noah, we saw it come back with Noah. So my second wish would be, we know it's going to come back. Let's kick it again. And then finally, third time lucky, we'll kick it forever. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we've got to fight this, but we've got to we've got to do everything we possibly can. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for your kind words just now. But hey, this isn't over, brother. This is not over. We've got a long way to go. One hundred percent. Like you said, no kids should have to go through that. No family, no parents should have to see their kid go through this. So, um, absolutely. Hey, I'm with you. You can't get rid of me now. <laughs> well, listen, uh, I couldn't help but as you introduced the the individual, John Wayne. I can't help but look at you and think you kind of got some similar facial features. Hey. We're going to do some fun things with the, uh, the imagery on this podcast. You just wait. <laughs> I can't wait to see that, bro. <laughs> Listen, as the Fundamism Podcast listener, we greatly appreciate your support. Uh, if the one hour of Dr. Karen Pemberton wasn't enough uh, in, in just showcasing what a terrific human being he was, think about the last thing that he just said. And specifically, if he had three wishes... The three wishes, I don't know if you caught them, uh, were completely unselfish and all related to finding a cure for pediatric cancer. So from the bottom of my heart, I say thank you to Dr. Kieran Pemberton and to the Fundamism podcast listener. We couldn't do this without you. We continue to come in and out of the top 100 in the business category. Uh, Please leave a review if you're into that sort of thing. That's how we get this thing out to the masses. Go out and create some fun in your lives today and hopefully create some fun in the lives of others. Until we see you on the flip side, be safe, smile often, and deuces. 